Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, the science program the Greens and the Independents are consulting in the new Australian Parliament. My name is Mark West and on this edition we'll feature Jacob Bronowski and sport at altitude. But first up, here's the news with Victoria Bond. Currently, more than two-thirds of the fuel used to generate power in the United States is lost as heat, according to a 2008 report from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. The goal of cogeneration technology is to convert this waste heat into electric and thermal power. Although the idea has been around for more than a century, the U.S. produces only about 9% of its power from cogeneration systems. In comparison, many European countries use cogeneration systems for a significantly larger portion of their electricity production, such as Denmark, which produces more than 50% of its power using waste heat recovery systems. In the U.S., the Department of Energy has a goal for recycled waste heat to account for 20% of U.S. electricity produced by 2030. Alphabet Energy's strength lies in its recent development of a thermoelectric chip that can be inserted into a wide variety of exhaust flues, engines, or other heat-producing devices to converse the weight heat into electricity. Depending on the properties of the heat generation system, the system could deliver a payback time of two to four years. In addition, since electricity generated from waste heat is 100% clean energy, Alphabet estimates that this technology will be able to offset more than 500 million tons of carbon annually. Alphabet Energy plans on performing a pilot test at an industrial facility next year and may start commercialization in about 2012. One of the challenges the company faces is that waste heat is one of the few power sources that the U.S. government does not currently subsidize. The other weekend, Australia won its first rugby test against South Africa at high altitude since the 1960s. What is different about sport at high altitude, and why do athletes train there? I recently spoke to Professor Chris Gore, who's head of physiology at the Australian Institute of Sport, and asked him that exact question. I guess uh, step one is to define the sort of altitude that, that we're talking about. And a lot of people think of altitude, you think about going up a mountain uh, to substantial heights and you know climbing peaks and everything else. But for athletes, effective altitude is probably in the range to 2,000 to 3,000 metres altitude only. Uh, give you a perspective on that, Kosciuszko is 2,228. That's our highest altitude in, in Australia. And so we usually have to go overseas to get to uh, the sort of uh, altitude that, that athletes like to train at. And, uh, and so an athlete performing at a very high altitude, well, at, above, uh, above 2K, yep. uh, what are some of the things that, that happen? I know we've, we all know about altitude sickness, mm-hmm. but uh, what are some of the other things that can happen to a body? Uh, well, just for clarity, then, altitude sickness is... Um, 
uh, in, induced by um, uh, ventilation, uh, so how much you breathe or lack of breathing to, to altitude and get things like you know, a minor headache. Um, just once you get over 3,000 metres, but for most athletes at 2,000, two and a half thousand metres, um, uh, th- those ventilatory changes still happen, just but to a, m- a more moderate extent. Um, and uh, probably the first thing that most people think about is making more red blood cells. You go up altitude a little bit, your body senses that there's a lower level of oxygen um, in the kidneys, and uh, then the body uh, signals the process to increase the rate of production of red blood cells. Okay. And that's a very, very common, strong uh, understanding about what altitude is all about. We at the AIS have done a fair bit of research looking at other areas that are, are related to red blood cells but also not related to red blood cells. And things we've looked at is um, uh, one thing called muscle buffer capacity, and that's to do with how the body handles, say, lactic acid, uh, lactate. Um, and found some very positive benefits from athletes uh, spending time in simulated altitude of, of two and a half to three thousand meters in terms of how their how their body is more effective, I guess, at handling uh, blood lactate. And so this is not so much due to a well, is it a lack of oxygen or is it due to the well? There's the pressure of oxygen is yeah. just less up there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very very correct. Um, uh, the, the the amount of oxygen, roughly twenty one percent, is the same. You know, once. Even at the top of Everest, it's still 21%. The difference is the pressure. So when you're uh, flying in a plane, a commercial plane across to Sydney or you know Perth or whatever, you know when your ears are popping, that's a change of pressures. Just like if you drive up a, a decent-sized hill, it happens about every three to six hundred metres, depending on the individual. It, it's it's a change of pressure, and that change of pressure means that the availability of oxygen across the lung is different. If you imagine there's the pressure helping to force or the diffusion of oxygen across the lung. If reduce the, the driving pressure by being higher at altitude, it's harder to get um, oxygen across across the lungs. And and how long does it take to adjust uh, at, let's say, an altitude of 2.5K, say? How long does it take to physiologically adjust to that? Can you ever adjust as well as somebody who's born there and lives their life there? Yeah, I think that at those sort of altitudes, the probable answer is yes. Um, and uh, you can probably uh, adapt mostly in a, in a couple of weeks um, to be able to perform quite well if you're, if, if you're an athlete. Uh, I've got good colleagues over in um, uh, Colorado Springs there who uh, measure military cadets at around 2,200 metres and they look at the, the time course of their haemoglobin and other changes in the body over you know, a year or more or two or three years of their cadets and find that in terms of the red cell changes, it probably takes up to uh, six, eight uh, months until they get full acclimatisation at, at that sort of altitude. Wow, eight months. Mm-hmm. That's for the red cells. But, you know, if you can imagine it's like an asymptotic curve where it sort of goes up quite rapidly and then plateaus off sort of gradually, gradually reaching the new plateau. But, but in, in, you know, for athletes wanting to go and compete at, um, you know, two and a half thousand metres altitude in, in some sort of endurance event, uh, if you spent uh, a couple of weeks at an altitude, which is what a, you know, a lot of people did before Mexico Games, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty... Um, uh, time-efficient way, I guess, of, of getting most of those adaptations uh, happening in the body. I saw uh, one of your papers, or actually a colleague of yours, I think, uh, looked at the South American Football League mm-hmm. and found that the high-altitude teams always had an advantage yep. at home. Yes, that's right. And uh, what, what, I, what I found really interesting was that the low-altitude teams had an advantage at home, Is and it was suggested that this seemed to be more than just home advantage. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I can only comment v- via... Uh, 
know, the, the feedback I've received from uh, speaking with um, uh, colleagues who are into high altitude medicine, and they talk about when they go to a trip into the high Andes somewhere, in, you know, for a, you know, an eight-week sojourn doing some scientific experiments, that they don't feel particularly uh, alert and just generally fatigued and tired when they when they come back down to uh, to, to sea level. And uh, I've also had uh, comments from from other colleagues involved with um, uh, with football players from you know, high altitude residents. That, that will give the same sort of experience. So that when their players come to, to sea level, say from three and a half thousand metres to, to play somewhere in sea level in South America, that the, the players don't, you know, just aren't snappy and alert uh, as they are in their home environment. And no one can give me a physiological explanation of what's going on. And some very eminent physiologists that I've been speaking with about that, uh, and no one really understands um, what might be going on. That, that's fascinating. So that sort of suggests that uh, altitude training, there might be a you wouldn't want to stay too long at altitude, perhaps, because you might get this lethargic feeling when you well, come back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the altitudes I'm talking about, there are high altitudes. Like uh, we talk about near sea level is probably you know closer to uh, less than a thousand meters, and once you start getting you know two to three thousand meters, that's moderate altitude, and three to five thousand meters is high altitude, and then above five thousand meters, very high altitude, and uh, five five somewhere around there. You know, no one on, on the planet lives above about five and a half thousand metres. Um, you know, it's only mountaineers go up there, there briefly. But in terms of two or three thousand metres, the, the lethargy and stuff, um, uh, I'm not sure it's such a problem at, at two to three thousand metres altitude spending long periods. It's more people that live at, you know, four or five thousand metres and then come down from those sort of altitudes. And the high altitude mountaineer medicine people I was talking about with, again, they're up very high, around five thousand or, or higher. And uh, the the live high, train low uh, principle seems to be reasonably well accepted. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, that's uh, a concept that that came from two different groups. One was in America, Ben Levine and Jim Stray Gunderson out of, uh, out of um, uh, where are they, from Dallas, and uh, another group in Finland, Heike Rusko. Uh, and one group, the first group used natural altitude, and the second group used a simulated altitude where you, you generate lots more nitrogen and pump it into an environment. Uh, and the principle is that... Um, that you spend some periods of time or most of the day uh, near 2,000, 3,000 metres living and a little bit of your training, but you come down um, to closer to sea level to do plenty of high-intensity training to maintain the, the top-end speed that, uh, say, endurance uh, athletes also like to have. You know, 10,000 metre race these days, it's the finishing 400 metres in you know, uh, 50 seconds or, or better. That's a pretty incredible sprint to, to the finish. So is, is that just because at altitude you, you physically can't uh, train as hard? Yep. Going to your question about you know, the partial pressure of oxygen, uh, we've done a series of experiments and, and other people as well sort of titrating how much altitude affects your, your uh, ability to transport oxygen. Uh, aerobic fitness, VO2 max is the, the scientific term we use, just means how much oxygen you can transport and use in, in your body. And every thousand metres of altitude you go up, you, you lose about six or seven percent of your VO2 max, your ability to use oxygen. So if you're you know, 3,000 metres, what was you know, an 80 percent effort you know, becomes effectively 20 percent harder. So, you know, what's that? You know, 
96% effort or something like that. So, yeah, you can't do as much work at altitude as you can at sea level because of the thinness of the air, because of the, the less oxygen. And when I say thinness, I've just reminded myself, of course, if you are uh, cycling or something like that, then the reduced density of the air is actually beneficial to, to some sports because, you know, projectiles, including human bodies, can go faster through thin air. And the classic example there is Bob Beeman, um, the long jump record in Mexico in 68, which, you know, held for 30 years or whatever um, you know, and part of that was because of the thinness of the air so there's sort of two, two components of altitude one, one is the physiological you know, endurance performance and then you know, sprinters uh, I'd say 100 metre runners uh, can go faster at altitude because of the thinness of the air. Yeah I was just about to ask you about the, the, the physics of it all I, I, I noticed that I think maybe up to about a 400 metre sprint you're actually quicker at, at, at certain high altitudes, but then beyond that, you get the physio- physiological things yeah, happening. Yeah. Um, what about something like like football or rugby? The Australian rugby team doesn't have a very impressive uh, record in South Africa, uh, and maybe this is to do with the the dyna- physics or physical dynamics acting on the balls. Do you think? Yeah, I mean that that could be part of it. Um, you know, what the Johannesburg seventeen hundred meters. You know, according to the analysis I did that you alluded to alluded to previously with Patrick McSharry from from Oxford uh, in terms of performance and home team advantages in in football or soccer as we sometimes call it in Australia. You know, there doesn't seem to be a huge effect when you look at hundreds and hundreds of games um, in terms of that altitude. But it is clear that you know the uh, the thinness of the air would affect the flight of the ball and the ability player, uh, um, the ability of players to read that flight. So maybe that's a component of it. Although, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, every thousand metres is, you know, 7% less on your, your, your aerobic fitness, essentially. So, you know, the Australian players playing rugby in Johannesburg or, or uh, football soccer in Johannesburg would also notice that, you know, the same efforts and their ability to recover from efforts are, are affected at that altitude uh, to, to, you know, a small extent. And, you know, we're on, in, in top-level sport, you're only talking you know, fractions of percentages between uh, winning and losing. And so what other sports would be uh, affected at altitude? Something like weightlifting, I guess, would possibly be easy because of the thinness of the air? I don't know, but uh, it's an anaerobic sport, uh, so it wouldn't be affected so much. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, the very... Um the nature of the sport only requiring, you know, seconds to, to lift weights uh, means that there'll be minimal benefit, although, you know, little research has been done. I think most people dismiss it as not being particularly interesting. Uh, another benefit, maybe a good example of the thinness of the air is Chris Boardman. Um, uh, no, it wasn't Boardman. It's uh, Chris Hoy, sorry, uh, tried to break the world kilometre record uh, for cycling uh, for... Um, in uh, I think it was in La Paz, Bolivia, 3,600 metres. And what what you, he's trying to do is go to an altitude where the air is thin enough that he can go extra fast. But he's also battling a compromise in his aerobic you know, fitness, his VO2 max, and he's trying to get the, the theoretical compromise where the air is extra thin, but he can still get enough oxygen to perform you know, for around about a minute. And you talked about the barometric pressures and stuff. He had a, a very limited window of opportunity to try and break that record, and he missed it by, I don't know, a couple of hundredths of a second. And if, if it had been like five millimetres of mercury higher barometric pressure, you know, he would have been going faster. Uh, it was just that it was a bit of a low, uh, um, sorry, high-pressure system over him at, at that stage, and uh, you know it didn't help his uh, ability to perform. So, and it's the same with mountaineers. You know, climbing Everest uh, during the um, uh, the summer season, where there are bigger, high-pressure systems, you know, human performance is at its very limits. Trying to uh, climb Everest uh, without oxygen, for instance, 
and that you know five or ten millimeters of mercury uh, pressure can make a, a difference uh, extraordinary difference at that level in terms of getting oxygen across the lung effectively well, they call that the, the death zone don't they above about five thousand meters yeah, above about five five uh, meters yeah I mean it's really uh, a level where the body is is struggling to get enough oxygen and then you get things like cerebral or pulmonary edema where you get fluid um, coming out of the, the lung or into the brain in the, in the case of cerebral edema um, you know which affects ability to think and you know if you've got water in your lungs or well, you don't breathe too well either um, uh, and it's just that the people really can't spend a lot of time at those uh, altitudes and uh, you know expect to um, uh, you know um, you know, but, you know, I guess there have been studies suggesting that even brain function is is uh, affected afterwards if you climb Everest without oxygen. Now, plenty of people have done it, and it's a fantastic feat of human endurance. But some of the studies I think I've read a little bit um, subsequently suggest that there may be some some uh, you know extra damage caused by the sort of cerebral edema swelling of the brain. I guess at, at those sort of altitudes at the top of Everest, and you know, commonly people um, use oxygen to uh, to ascend Everest. Yeah, Sup- supplemental oxygen. That was Professor Chris Gore, Head of Physiology at the Australian Institute of Sport. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, broadcast in Sydney on 2SCR and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and available over the internet at www.diffusionradio.com. As I said before, I'm Mark West, and Lachlan Watmore has written an intro for me to read. We at Diffusion are science communicators. We love to communicate science. We also love to read what's put in front of us, like this intro for the next feature about Jacob Bronowski. Here it is. You see, according to this piece of paper, Jake Bronowski was one of the giants of science communication long before it was even a recognised academic discipline. He particularly stressed one thing. Don't always believe the piece of paper put in front of you. By the way, I'm also instructed to tell you that I voted for Wilson Tucky. By the way, I'm also instructed to tell you that I voted for Wilson Tucky. Once upon a time, this show used to be introduced with these words. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. The words are from the Auguries of Innocence by the 19th century poet William Blake. And the man reciting them is a guru of mine the late mathematician, biologist, and man of letters, Jacob Brunofsky. Brunofsky is best known for his last major work, a BBC television series made in the early 70s called The Ascent of Man, which was broadcast in 1974, the year he died. However, The Ascent of Man should be regarded as the logical conclusion to a life dedicated to science and the uncovering of its human face. Jacob Bronowski was a short, plump, very European-looking man with spectacles and a slightly world-weary expression. He was born in Poland in 1908, 
moved to England during his childhood and obtained his PhD in mathematics from Cambridge in 1933. Before World War II, he taught mathematics at the University College of Hull. When the war started, he assisted with the evaluation of the strategic bombing campaign against Germany. In doing so, he pioneered a mathematical field known as operational research in a quest to increase the effectiveness of Allied bombing missions. In 1945, he visited the ruins of Nagasaki to study the effects of the nuclear strike. It moved him so much that he forswore any more military research. After the war, Bronowski turned his attention to ethics and the human side of science, studying biology and the evolution of culture. He wrote several critically acclaimed books, including a biography of William Blake, and also wrote several books of poetry himself. He worked for UNESCO as head of their projects division, and later for the British National Coal Board. In 1964, he was made a resident fellow of the Salk Institute of Biological Sciences, a post he retained until his death in 1974. The Ascent of Man series is regarded as one of the finest works of popular science made for television, ranking with Carl Sagan's Cosmos and David Attenborough's Life on Earth. The Ascent of Man looks at the intellectual achievements of the human race in terms of science, in particular mathematics, physics and biology. One particular episode of The Ascent of Man is called Knowledge or Certainty. I must have watched it about 50 times by now, and it never fails to profoundly move me. It deals with the concept that there is no absolute knowledge. And those who claim it, whether they're scientists or dogmatists, open the door to tragedy. All information is imperfect. We have to treat it with humility. That's the human condition, and that's what quantum physics says. Bronowski demonstrates the imperfection of knowledge by analysing the face of an old man. He photographs it, maps it, sculpts it, uses a variety of electrical and optical sensors to depict it, and even gets the great artist Felix Topolsky to paint its portrait in several different styles. The point is made that there are many different ways of seeing the face. Bronowski then goes on to discuss the principle of uncertainty in physics, which emerged at the same time as National Socialism, a political dogma which doesn't exist without monstrous certainty and the justification of the means by the ends. There are two parts to the human dilemma. One is the belief that the end justifies the means. That push-button philosophy that deliberate deafness to suffering has become the monster in the war machine. The other is the betrayal of the human spirit, the assertion of dogma that closes the mind and turns a nation, a civilization, into a regiment of ghosts, obedient ghosts or tortured ghosts. In the final scene, the old man whose face was being thoroughly analysed at the beginning of the program appears in a still mugshot photograph. He is younger and wearing the striped uniform of the concentration camp inmate and we realise that we are looking at a mugshot taken on the day he entered Auschwitz. Bronowski's polished, articulate manner tended to label him as intellectually conservative. He was anything but, and this was enormously refreshing in a period still dominated by the so-called modern school, where science had the answer to everything and authority was not to be questioned. 
Brunofsky, while obviously proud of the achievements of science, took great care to show that even it was fallible and must be constantly questioned. The university is a mecca to which students come with something less than perfect faith. It's important that students bring a certain ragamuffin irreverence to their studies. They're not here to worship what is known, but to question it. Neither did Brunofsky hesitate to pour scorn on people with narrow, closed minds. He praises the great Carl Gauss for his open mind on mathematical matters and contrasts him with an 18th century philosopher, Friedrich Hegel. Whom, I must confess, I specifically detest. And I'm happy to share that profound feeling with a far greater man, Gauss. In 1800, Hegel published a thesis, if you please, proving that although the definition of planets had changed since the ancients, there still could only be, philosophically, seven planets. Well, not only Gauss knew how to answer that, Shakespeare had answered that long before. There is a marvellous passage in King Lear, in which who else but the fool says to the king, the reason why the seven stars are no more than seven is a pretty reason. And the king wags sagely and says, because they are not eight. And the fool says, yes, indeed, thou wouldst make a good fool. And so did Hegel. That was Lachlan Watmore, ably assisted by the late, great Jacob Bronowski on the life and work of the late, great Jacob Bronowski. And that's all from us in this week's edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, or would like to offer us a position in Cabinet, send an email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond and Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Mark West. Till next week, parting is such sweet sorrow, so may all your dreams be sciencey and all your fantasies diffusing.